This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. I am uh, doing the show from the home studio tonight up in Thornhill, just north of Toronto. So that means Ian is back at Zoomerplex in master control. He's sitting behind the big audio board. Ryan is running the YouTube live stream from his place in East York. And Albert, my fine story producer, is taking the night off. So let's hold. Let's hope uh, all the technology holds together, and uh, we can deliver this two-hour transmission for you uh, without a wrinkle. So last week marked the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Robert Kennedy. He was mortally wounded at the Ambassador Hotel after winning the California primary. He was seeking the Democratic nomination for president. His son, Robert Kennedy Jr recently met with the supposed gunman, Sirhan Sirhan, in the uh, state prison outside San Diego, where he remains behind bars. Kennedy, now 64, is lending his support to an investigation into his father's murder. And we have Sirhan Sirhan's defense attorney about to join us live in just a moment. Uh, In the second hour, essayist, seeker, uh, spiritual warrior, author Thomas Rosetto, uh, joins me to talk enlightenment. That's certainly in short supply, wouldn't you say? That's coming up in the second hour. Now, a couple of thoughts on the death of Anthony Bourdain, the celebrity chef, uh, author, television host. I met him, oh, 15 years ago. He was doing the circuit, uh, touring a, a, a book that he had written. I'm not sure if it was Kitchen Confidential. 
However, struck me as a very nice man. Certainly, I was a fan of his television work. I really enjoyed Parts Unknown. It was raw and honest and dangerous a little bit. I was shocked uh, and saddened by his death. Now, there are a lot of conspiracies floating around that he was murdered. But I have to say, it could be very well that he committed suicide. And if it was, the last thing I want to do is diminish the, um, the unimaginable suffering that people who have depression endure. It's an everyday battle. And when people say, oh, it doesn't make sense that he would take his own life. Why would he leave behind an 11-year-old daughter? Why would he leave behind a career that he loved? A depression doesn't play by the rules, folks. It's clever and deceptive and cruel. So again, it very well could have been a suicide. On the other hand, uh, he and his partner, Asia Argento, uh, certainly called out Hollywood and Harvey Weinstein recently. Argento was one of Weinstein's alleged victims. And uh, not sure if you heard her remarks at the uh, Cannes Film Festival. I mean, she just lambasted the hypocrisy of Hollywood. And I could certainly see a truth seeker, a courageous man like Anthony Bourdain, perhaps maybe doing an expose on Hollywood's worst kept secret, the pedophile ring that exists there, for example. That would certainly rub people at the very top and in the innermost circles the wrong way, some very powerful people. And I also wondered whether I'm thinking maybe you thought the same thing. I've always wondered whether Anthony Bourdain may have been a CIA asset. Think about it. It's a perfect cover for him to get into certain places and gather intel. Regardless, a very sad and uh, tragic loss uh, for him, for his fans, and certainly foremost for his, uh, his young family. A sad loss 50 years ago last week, certainly. Democrat presidential hopeful Robert Kennedy was slain, shot June 5th, 1968, died a day later while seeking the Democratic nomination. The supposed gunman, a 23-year-old Palestinian-American, Sirhan Sirhan, he certainly was present in the uh, the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel. He was holding an eight-shot Iverwood 22 caliber pistol. He fired all eight shots, all eight bullets accounted for. He injured, I believe, four or five other people. They all survived. They were surrounding Kennedy. Uh, but since he was in front of Kennedy, it seems virtually impossible that he could have fired the fatal shots that killed Bobby since L.A. County Coroner Thomas Noguchi at the time concluded Bobby was shot from behind and at very close range. I believe Noguchi was chased out of town for that, if memory serves. Sirhan pled guilty to first-degree murder, but says he has no recollection of firing those shots. There were, I believe, something like 14 bullets identified, or 14 bullet holes identified. How do you get 14 shots from an eight-shot Iverwood 22? Well, you don't, clearly. So many questions, so many inconsistencies, which is why... Uh, Bobby Jr. and a couple of his siblings are now supporting uh, calls for a new investigation. Joining me on the line is Sirhan Sirhan's defense attorney, Lori Dusek. 
She's an attorney at law, and she has addressed the parole board for the release of Sirhan Sirhan, the suspect in the RFK assassination. Lori, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, are you continuing to work with William Francis Pepper on uh, on on this uh, this case? Yes, I am. And what is the status? I mean, I know that Sirhan Sirhan was originally up for parole way back in 1984. Uh, wh- why don't we start there? What happened? Why was he denied uh, a parole? And and what is sort of give us maybe a thumbnail sketch? What has transpired since 1984? Well. At every parole hearing, the parole board brings up the fact that Sir Han disrupted the democratic process in this country, and that's the grounds that they deny parole. Those are charges that he was he never faced in a court of law. He faced uh, he was convicted of killing the senator and of uh, t- five attempted murders. Uh, if he had killed anybody, if he had killed somebody named Robert Francis and not Robert Francis Kennedy, he would have been eligible for parole, and I believe he would have been paroled in 1984. In, in 2011, I attended my first parole hearing on his behalf, and in 2016, I attended the second. And, and quite frankly, they're a farce. I, I know as soon as that we walk in there that they've already made up their mind and they're not going to grant parole. They're waiting, Paul for to admit, yeah. they're, they're waiting for Sirhan to admit that he killed the senator, and he has no memory of it. And over the last few years working with Dan Brown and myself, he's come to realize that when he was told that he did it, those people were, were forcing their truth on him. Uh, he now believes that uh, he did not kill the senator. We should uh, talk a little bit about Dr. Dan Brown and his work. Could you uh, could you describe what Dr. Dan Brown does? Sure. Um, Dan Brown is a forensic psychologist. He's affiliated with Harvard University, and he's one of the leading forensic psychologists in the world. He's written four books on hypnosis, and I, in his thirty-something year career, he's hypnotized thousands of people. And he's, he says that the easiest person he's ever hypnotized was Sirhan. Sirhan goes under hypnosis so quickly. Now, I've never seen a person hypnotized in person until I saw Sirhan hypnotized. My exposure to hypnosis was like on TV. So it was very interesting to watch. And, and Dan has, in order to make all of whatever Dan does to make it acceptable in a court of law, he follows a pattern where he starts with free recall. And then he'll go into the hypnosis, and then he'll wake Sirhan up, and he'll go back into free recall. So Dan doesn't make any suggestions to Sirhan. And, and, um, an example would be uh, asking Sirhan his memory of what happened that night under free recall. And then while he's under hypnosis, Dan will state the, uh, some of the things that Sirhan had said in free recall, and he'll say, now, focus on that and, let, and tell me what else you know about it. So he doesn't plant any suggestions, because when the original trial was going on, both the prosecution and the defense had doctors come in, and they hypnotized Sirhan, which is a very strange thing to happen, because you don't usually prep a defendant for trial by having them hypnotized. But both times, both the prosecution and the defense, they would lead Sirhan on when he was hypnotized. They would tell him what they wanted him to repeat. 
And, and Dan has worked with Sirhan now for the last 10 years, spent over 100 hours with him, and I've been there at all, at, for every single uh, one of those hours. And he, he submitted a bunch of psychological tests. He actually gave the Rorschach test again, and he scaled it the way that it was scaled. They changed the way that they um, rate the test. He rated it the way that it would have been rated in 1968, and then he rated it the way it was, would be done today. He also gave a copy of those tests to a colleague of his, and he didn't tell the colleague um, who had taken the test. And they both came out saying that um, Sirhan was not schizophrenic because the defense and the prosecution in the original trial said that he was schizophrenic. There's no signs of that at all. Can, and can that last, be determined by a Rorschach test? That's, that test plus many other tests were given. But right. the defense and the prosecution said, pursuant to the Rorschach test and a few other tests, that Sirhan was schizophrenic, um, which he's not. Um, he's been in jail now for 50 years. He's received no psychological treatment, and um, there's no signs of schizophrenic. I don't think schizophrenia is a, a disease that cures itself. I think, if anything, being confined for 50 years probably would um, aggravate the condition. One would think. Yes. Lori Dusek is uh, an attorney at law. She is representing uh, Sirhan Sirhan. Uh, we're heading into a break here, Lori, but what is it? At, what is the status right now? What is it you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to... Um, are you trying to get another parole hearing? Are you contributing well, to... Well, our to, next uh, parole we'll, hearing's in uh, 2021, and I don't think Sirhan will even attend that hearing because he's just completely fed up with um, the way they handled it. We have a petition in front of the uh, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights because we've basically exhausted every legal avenue in this country. The Supreme Court a year ago turned down our request. We filed papers, and they were denied because it supposedly improperly filed time-wise. But there are some issues with the date that the file was, the date that the, the papers were stamped and the date that they say in their rejection are two different dates. We didn't, Lori, we didn't, we're gonna, yes? Lori, pardon my interruption. We're, we're heading into a break. We'll come back. We'll pick up on that. We'll also talk about the recent visit by Bobby Kennedy Jr., Paul Schrade's call for a new investigation. He was there standing beside Bobby that night. He says there were gunmen in behind. We'll get to all of that and much more. Louis Dusek, Lori Dusek, excuse me, is Sirhan Sirhan's defense attorney. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lori Dusek is with us, an attorney at law representing Sirhan Sirhan, the supposed gunman in the RFK assassination. That was 50 years ago last week. He was mortally wounded at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles shortly after uh, declaring victory in the California primary. Uh, now, Lori, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is something that you're able to answer, but do you, I mean, are you interested not interested that's not the right word do you have an opinion as to whether you believe sirhan sirhan 
in fact, killed the senator? Or are you simply taking this case as someone who believes he deserves to be paroled at this point? Bobby Kennedy is my hero uh, and, and has been since I've been a little kid. So I would not represent Sirhan if I thought that he was guilty of the assassination. Excellent so, um, uh, answer. Thank you. Yeah. My, the, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you is Robert Kennedy Jr. recently visited with Sirhan Sirhan. Were you present during that meeting? Yes, I was. I set the meeting up and I was present. And it took How quite a while Sirhan- in prison to allow uh, me to get clearance for Bobby Jr. How did Sirhan Sirhan react when he was told that Bobby Jr. wanted to visit him? He was pleasantly surprised. He had been hoping for a while. It's it's interesting because uh, looking through some of my notes earlier this week, some notes from like 2012, Sirhan was wondering why members of the Kennedy family weren't coming out and asking for some of the matters to be looked into. And the members that he mentioned would be Ethel Kennedy and Bobby Jr. So he was very, very pleasantly surprised when, when he found out that Bobby wanted to see him and, and sit down, and they spoke for three hours. Are you, would you be breaching client confidentiality if you talked in general terms about what they talked about? No, I wouldn't be, because um, things that I can't say, I, I, I won't say. Um, Bobby was really, it was really kind of him. He, he shook Sirhan's hand and very quietly said to him, I know you didn't kill my father. And that set the whole mood for the meeting. And I think that put Sirhan at ease. And they discussed things like um, Grant Cooper, who was the defense attorney during the trial. They discussed right. all the errors in, in which I think were pretty much intentional that Cooper had done and all the things that Cooper did not do during the trial. They discussed, because Sirhan was working at a, a horse farm at the time, well, for two years, two years prior to the assassination, he was working at a horse farm, and that's where a lot of, of the story starts. So they were talking about, they talked about horses. Um, Sirhan kept saying to Bobby how badly he felt, and Bobby kept saying to him, look, I know that you didn't do it. Bobby was very interested in how Sirhan spends his days, what he does at the prison, what he reads. So it was just generally that type of conversation. He did, he did ask Sirhan a couple of questions regarding that night, like whether or not Sirhan remembered having a gun with him. He does not remember, but he says, obviously, I, I did, because you know, there's pictures of him with the gun in hand, but he's got no recollection of it. So those are the things that were discussed. I, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for for you know for Bobby to to come and see Sirhan Sirhan, the man who for many years many believed was responsible for the senator's death. But what do you suppose took Bobby so long, and what was the impetus for him to coming to see Sirhan? Well, I don't. I can't speak for Bobby. I don't know why it took him, why he decided at this point of time that this is what he was going to do. It, well, Paul Schrade, who was the gentleman that was that took the first bullet like 50 years ago, Paul Schrade was a friend of the senators, and Paul, for years now, has been 
leading the way in trying to find the truth to what happened that evening. Paul does not believe that Sirhan killed the senator. Paul does believe that Sirhan shot um, him and some of the other five members that were wounded that night. Uh, and I personally, I don't know, because there was not enough ballistic tests done. Actually, there were no ballistic tests done by the defense team. So I can't make any comments, because I don't have enough information as to whether who, what bullets Sirhan shot, because according to eyewitnesses, after the second shot, Sirhan was pinned down onto a steam table, and his gun, people had his, their hand on his arm, and he was pulling the trigger, and the, the bullets were going wildly, but the majority of the bullets were heading at an upward angle towards the tiles on the ceiling. Right. So right. I think Paul Schrade is the person that's responsible for Bobby getting knowledge on this. Uh, I don't... When I was talking to Bobby about the autopsy report, I didn't even know how to bring it up, because an autopsy report is not an easy topic to bring up to somebody when it's their father's report. Indeed. And, and Indeed. yes, he has read it. Um, and, and the autopsy report is probably the, the most solid piece of evidence that, that shows that Sirhan did not kill the senator. So, and this was why it took him so long, I have no idea, but the fact that he's there and the fact that he did it and the fact that he's speaking out now, I, like I said, I think he's very courageous. Absolutely. Would Bobby, or has he lent his support to, uh, I mean, would he appear at a parole hearing or would he push for an earlier parole hearing? Has he, has he given you any indication that he's willing to do things like that? At this point, we haven't discussed what he's willing to do, um, but the fact that he did go public and the fact that he has asked for the uh, for a reinvestigation into the uh, murder of his father speaks volumes. I'm sure he we has more to say, the, but I don't sorry, know go when, ahead, when and how go he's going to say that. The autopsy report that you mentioned, uh, for those listening that aren't aware of the findings, this was prepared by Dr. Thomas Noguchi, correct? Correct. And, and his Dr. determination Noguchi, when, was that the senator that, was... When he said the senator wasn't going to live, he called Sarah Wecht, who's a renowned medical examiner and also an attorney. And Sarah suggested that, he said um, to Noguchi that they didn't want another Dallas because the, the autopsy in Dallas on the president was really botched. So Sarah suggested to Tom Noguchi that he call Washington, and, and Noguchi did. And five people, five different members of different militaries, uh, the, the Army, the Marines, and the Navy, flew out, and they supervised the autopsy. So the autopsy is, is one of the most detailed pieces of evidence you could look at. And again, not only did Noguchi do everything, but he was supervised by people that were flown in from D.C. And the findings were that, that the fatal, the mortal head wound was in the rear within, at very close range behind, was it the right ear? That's correct. It was behind, the, the fatal shot came from behind the right ear um, at an, with an upward trajectory of approximately 40 degree angles, and it was within one to two inches behind the right ear. And they could they decide they could figure that out by the powder burns that were left on the senator's hair and on the collar of his jacket and um, shirt. He was also Very hit detailed. several times in the back, correct? He four bullets, three bullets um, struck him. The fourth bullet went through his shoulder pad. 
So he had he had a bullet in, in behind the right ear. He had one bullet that went to the sixth vertebrae, and then he had a bullet what they call through and through. It went right through his shoulder. All shots from the rear. All of them shot from the rear. All of them at an upward trajectory. And again, Sirhan's position, Roosevelt Greer, who was working security for the senator, had pinned, I believe it was Roosevelt Greer, had pinned Sirhan's arm to the steam table. A number of people were uh, assisting. Sirhan's position relative to the center, or to the senator was the front and to the left, was it not? Actually, it was to the front and to the right. To the right. My apologies. Okay. That's okay. Um, but he was pinned down after the second shot. So, and, 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 and how- they say he had a gun that held eight bullets, and the, I just told you that four bullets for the senator, and then there were five other people wounded. What happened to the 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 uh, the ceiling tiles and and the uh, the bullets that were recovered from the ceiling tiles and the and door jams and so forth. The ceiling tiles, well, the ceiling tiles and the door jams. Some of them were destroyed prior to trial, and some of them were destroyed after trial before the appeal. Twenty four hundred pieces of evidence were destroyed in August of 1968 in an incinerary in a L.A. hospital. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> well, uh, I think we know why. <laughs> well, but, but they would be so blatant. I mean, it's just amazing that they'd just be so blatant. That's a lot of evidence to be destroyed at one time. After the trial, when they destroyed some door jams, they said that they physically didn't have the space to um, keep them. There was every, those those tiles and those um, that door jam. They had bullets in there, and and if you had added everything up, it would have added up to more than eight eight bullets. Did they recover bullets from Senator Kennedy? Yes, they did. And that in in chambers, without Sirhan's knowledge, Grant Cooper, the defense attorney, stipulated that he would agree with all the ballistic findings of the prosecution, even though the prosecution said they could not um, laid, make a, a chain of custody. They admitted that they did not, they could not back up where the bullets came from. The gun was not recovered at the scene that evening. The gun was taken out of Sirhan's hand by Rosie Greer, who then gave it to Rafer Johnson. Rafer Johnson put it into his coat pocket and only hours later, Rafer Johnson went to the police station and turned it in. I, I thought that at a, at a crime scene, they usually look for the weapon. Police didn't even do that. So there was no chain of custody on the gun. And, and they admitted that they could not lay a foundation for the bullets. But Grant Cooper st- stipulated whatever they said. My word. Yeah. <laughs> Any and then, and then in 1974, defender. in the Wanky Committee, yes. where they were, Paul Shray tried to have this reopened and, and the ballistics looked at, they found out that the, the bullet that they said that came from behind the senator's ear was supposed to match the bullets of two other victims, and, and they didn't. And not only did they it's, not match, but when Tom Noguchi had taken the bullet, he marked it, his initials, T.N., 
and then the numerals 3-1. But at the Wanky Committee, when they brought out that, supposedly that bullet, it had the initials on it, T-N-D-W. Uh, D-W would have been Dwayne Wolfers, who was the ballistic expert uh, for the police, the L.A. police. So Noguchi labeled the bullet one way, and then years later, because the bullets were never physically put into evidence at the trial, because the defense stipulated to everything. So it was, Tom Noguchi never examined the bullets at the trial. And so in 1974, when they were finally looked at, they didn't match. This is such a, a blatant uh, a cover-up. I mean, any any competent lawyer should have been able to get Sirhan Sirhan off. Who was this? What do we know about this Grant Cooper, his the late uh, defense attorney? What do we know about him? Well, he had a reputation for being, uh, he was a well-known criminal attorney. But the interesting thing is that he was facing charges himself. He was facing felony charges. He had been... He, he was representing a client, Maurice Friedman, who was a co-defendant with Johnny Roselli, the mafia um, member. Mm-hmm. It's, the, the case was called the Friars Club. They used to have poker games there, and they drilled holes in the ceilings so they could look at the people's cards, and they, they'd pass. You know, they, they were cheating that way that they could actually see the cards that people had. So that's that's how that particular case started. They were arrested. Grant Cooper represented one of the co-defendants. Grant Cooper was found to have grand jury documents on his table, and they were they were not to be seen by him. And he was facing four felony charges. He he was facing prison time, and after he represented Sirhan, and Sirhan was found guilty and sentenced to um, death. Uh, Cooper, all charges were dropped against Cooper, except he had to pay a $1,000 fine. So, obviously, someone got to Cooper and told him to uh, to play ball, uh, to railroad Sirhan Sirhan, and he would get off. I mean, that's pretty evident, pretty clear. That way. And it, it looks also another attorney, um, Attorney Parsons, he had a lot of mafia clients as well. And you, it, it just seems, you know, Bobby Kennedy was not loved by the mob. And to think that the, the people that were supposedly defending him defended the people that hated Bobby Kennedy. It just seems that seems to be a, 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 not a coincidence. Uh, Laurie, just hold on. We'll take another break when we come back. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the fact that Sirhan Sirhan is such... A, a good hypnosis uh, subject and what that might mean and uh, we'll get into obviously the uh, the lady in the polka dot dress uh, and much more much much more Laurie Dusek the uh, defense attorney for Sirhan Sirhan the supposed gunman in the RFK assassination 50 years ago last week back with more of the conspiracy show my name is Richard Serrett where there's smoke There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. 
Welcome back. Lori Dusek is here, attorney at law, and is um, defending Sirhan Sirhan, or at least trying to get a, another parole hearing. And we're talking about the possibility of a new investigation into the assassination of Robert Kennedy uh, 50 years ago last week. You mentioned Johnny Roselli and how uh, Sirhan's original attorney, Grant Cooper, uh, was defending Roselli in a uh, in a case uh, called the Friars Club, and it's interesting because Roselli was connected to uh, the Chicago mob, and and the Chicago mob, Sam Giancana, and and I believe Charles Nicoletti, uh, and Roselli. Uh, some people believe were connected with the JFK assassination. So this comes full circle. Who's the question that jumps out to me is who is who is recommending these attorneys to Sirhan Sirhan? Why did he get stuck with a Grant Cooper? Well, at the time, he didn't think he was getting stuck because Cooper had a fantastic reputation. Uh, now it's one of his Sirhan's biggest regrets. They came from, he came from a poor family. They didn't have any money. And I'm not sure exactly how Cooper, who pushed Cooper to do this, but I think that Cooper had reasons to want to take this case. And the big reason is he was facing charges from the Friars Club. I think Cooper was told... Now, see, I feel bad because Grant Cooper's not allow, alive to defend himself, so I'm just making assumptions here. I'm, I'm, I think that Grant Cooper took this case so he could make the problems that he had disappear. It would appear that that is the case. Uh, you know, it doesn't take much to connect those dots. Now, I want to go back to uh, Dan Brown. This is the, for, is, it, was he a, is he a forensic psychologist, did you say? Yes. So the purpose of hypnotizing Sirhan Sirhan is to do what? To demonstrate that he may have been hypnotized that, that day in 1968 uh, that he was a a, a mind-controlled patsy, in effect? Is that what what's behind this? The purpose of what Dan was trying to do is, uh, Dan and I believe that Sirhan is a Manchurian candidate, and Dan was trying to debrief Sirhan. We he was not successful. A lot of hours went into it, over 100 hours, and... We can. We found out a few things on the hypnosis, but uh, when it gets to a certain point, Sirhan goes into a very defensive mode and just doesn't go any further. Which leads and us not, to the. It's not just hypnosis. Oh. Back back then, see, Dan thinks it was a combination of three things. He thinks that it was hypnosis, coercion, and drugs, and the drug would be barbiturates for Sirhan at that particular time, and he thinks that the combination of that. That's how they um, got the mind control over Sirhan. Which brings us to the mysterious lady in the polka dot dress. Sirhan Sirhan mentioned seeing this lovely woman at the Ambassador Hotel. They had coffee. There are many witnesses at the Ambassador who remembered this woman in the polka dot dress leaving the hotel in an awful hurry with another man unidentified yelling something like, we got him, we shot him, or something to that effect. Yes, and when somebody said, who, who, who'd you shoot? And they said, the senator. And um, people inside the ambassador hotel saw this woman run out with another man, 
and then an elderly couple from New York saw the same couple as they were leaving the Ambassador Hotel and, and on the front, front of the property. That elderly couple went up to a police uh, sergeant and reported what they saw. That police sergeant put out an all-point bulletin with the description of the woman and the man. And within 20 minutes, the superior uh, told him to take down the all-point bulletin. Well, they solved the whole crime in, in 20 minutes. They weren't looking for any, any other suspects. You have more than five people that saw this woman and this other man run from the scene, and the police didn't look for anybody. I read online, and I was trying to look for the story today, and I can no longer find it, of course, but I, I read online recently where someone, some researcher believes they have identified the woman in the polka dot dress. She passed away several years ago. Are you familiar with this story? Uh, Brad Johnson and uh, Tim Tate believe that they, they've... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, when I've asked Sir Han... Uh, Dan and I had brought in a bunch of photographs of, of women uh, that we thought might look like the polka dot dress girl from the descriptions that we've read about, and Sirhan was not able to identify any of the, the photos that we brought in. He did say that she looked that she had an unusual nose. She looked rather provincial. She was very well endowed, and, and he thought he was going to get lucky that night. He, he was following this woman around because he was 24 years old, and he thought um, he, he met this beautiful woman, and, and he'd follow her anywhere. So is it Dan's contention or your contention that perhaps she was his controller, that she perhaps uh, used some sort of a trigger word or spiked the coffee? How does she, she pinched, fit into this, do you think? She pinched him when uh, uh, he had no idea of the layout of the Ambassador Hotel. And he had had four drinks that evening, and that's interesting as well, because Sir Han had only had drinks twice before in his life. So he had four drinks that night, and they went to his head. When he went back to his car, he was going to drive home. When he got into his car, he realized that he was in no shape to drive, so he went back to the hotel to find coffee. When he went back to the hotel to find coffee, he saw this woman. And this woman just happened to be looking for coffee. They started talking, and she said, I know the way. And she took him up to get the coffee. And then this, this gentleman came up and said, you can't stay here. Move on. So she moved on. She took him into the pantry, and then he remembers her turning him around and pinching him. And not just a, a small pinch, but he said it was very painful. And at that moment, after the pinch, she turned him around, and he saw... Well, that's the way the senator was coming in. And Sir Han went into range mode, pulled out a gun, and he thought that he was on a firing range. All right, I've got to jump in right here again, Laurie. We'll take another time out, come back on the other side. Laurie Dusick, we, we are talking about Sir Han, Sir Han, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Beaming across North America, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means... 
There's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Laurie Dusick stays with us for a short uh, while yet. We're discussing uh, her client, Sirhan Sirhan, who languishes in prison just out, uh, outside of San Diego. Uh, he was transferred there from Corcoran uh, Penitentiary. When did that happen and why? From Corcoran to Pleasant Valley. And yes. when they were transporting him, his brother Muneer said to me, I believe that Sirhan's going to be transported. And when I called the prison up, and, and they knew who I was, because, you know, I, I had been there numerous times and I was on record. They denied that Sirhan was being transferred. And as they're denying that, Sirhan's in the back of a van being transferred from Corcoran to Pleasant Valley. He was at Pleasant Valley for a few years, and then he contacted Pleasant Valley Fever. So what is they that? transferred what is that? him out to Donovan Prison in San Diego. What year did that take place? That took place, I believe, about three years ago, and it took place on November 22nd. And what is Pleasant Valley Fever? Pleasant Valley Fever, there's something in the air, there's little spores in the air, and they attack the lungs. People walk around with low, low fevers, and it can be deadly. So he was transferred from Pleasant Valley to Donovan, uh, uh, Donovan, Donovan which is at, right at Rock Mountain. And what is his day-to-day schedule like? What does he do all day? How, is he, how does he spend his time? Well, right now he's working in, in the kitchen. He pretty much stays to himself. He has a single cell. Um, that's one thing that we're, we've been trying and we're going to continue to, to have him sold um, individually. He doesn't read as much anymore because he's losing a little bit of his, of his hope and his interest. He exercises and he listens to a radio. That, that's how he spends his time. Have there ever been an attempts on his life while he was in prison? I don't. I wouldn't say attempts on his life, but he has been harassed, and a lot of the harassment has come from prison officials more so than inmates. Though there have been a couple of occasions with inmates, when, especially when he's been moved from one prison to another, there seems to be this this prison ritual of turf, and so he's he's had issues with that. But most how, of the time, it's how? issues with individual guards that 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 try to provoke him. And, and he, he goes out of his way because I, I'm, I tell him, protect yourself, but please keep your hands to yourself. And he does. But, you know, it gets to the point where these people just keep trying to provoke him. But he, keeps, he walks away. How often is he allowed to see visitors? He's allowed to see visitors uh, pretty much as, well, on a Saturday is when family can come. But his brother hasn't seen him since 2006. For, for numerous reasons. Over the last 11 years, I'm the person that's been 
from the outside that has seen Sirhan the most. And I've, I've only, I was there in December with Bobby, and then I was there last June. So that's not a lot of contact with the outside world. His brother and he, they speak on the phone, and the phone rights depend on if the prison's on lockdown, then that week they don't get to talk. But they try to talk every week, and they send letters to one another all the time. Does Sirhan Sirhan receive other mail? Does he receive a lot of mail? No, he does not receive a lot of mail, but he does receive some mail. Are people free to write to him if they wanted to? Yes, they are. Of course, the mail will be, you know, it's all opened by the prison and read, and then they decide what goes through and what doesn't. I guess one one of the obvious questions that might one might ask is, if he was set up and he was framed, and I certainly believe that he was, why would the the powers that be, who was ever responsible for this, allow him to live? Often in these situations, as we saw with John F. Kennedy, um, the patsy is eliminated. Why why was Sirhan Sirhan in this scenario allowed to live? Okay, it's going to be a guess on my part. I've got two theories on that. One of them is probably because the way that they programmed him, where he's got absolutely no memory. His last memory is walking on into that room, into the pantry, and his next memory is when people are pushing him up against the steam table. So I think that him being a Manchurian candidate, they weren't uh, concerned about anything that he could say. Because it's been 50 years so far, and he has maintained the same story throughout the 50 years. I, another thought that I have is that they messed up and he was supposed to be killed. And, w- and when was that likely to have taken place? When was it supposed to take place? In that prison? Evening. That evening. That evening. I think that I don't think it mattered what door the senator left the ambassador hotel that day. The, the senator's route was changed about 15 minutes before the end of his speech, and they decided that he was going to go through the pantry to avoid all the crowd. Well, nobody notified. Well, best of my recollection, Sirhan's nobody came up and told Sirhan which way the, the uh, senator was going to leave. Only three people in the senator's party knew wh- the, the change of route. I don't think it mattered. I think they had somebody at every exit. It didn't matter which way the senator went. He was not going to walk out alive that night. Well, particularly if the assassin was walking behind him. Do we have any likely suspects? Well, a lot of people think that the ace security guard of Thane, um, Eugene Caesar, who was holding the senator's right arm and who pulled the gun that night, he had a thirty-eight uh, revolver, a lot of people think that he's the assassin. I, you know, for the last 11 years, I've been focusing on trying to show that Sirhan could not have done the crime and not looked into as heavily as I should have who I think could have done it, because that's the state of California's responsibility. Right. Uh, in our last filings to the state, they actually wrote that we showed the possibility of a second gunman, and we showed the possibility of mind control, but... We didn't show who the second gun person was, and we didn't show who did the mind control. That's not my job. I did my job by raising the doubt. It's their job then to solve it. Correct. You raised reasonable doubt. 
you raised reasonable doubt by their own admission. How could they then deny a retrial? Very good question, but they did. It's sloppy writing, because I was so surprised that they actually let that out, because they admit that we showed that doubt. Robert Kennedy Jr. met with President-elect Trump shortly after he was uh, voted into office. And I believe they talked about vaccines at that time. And the possibility uh, was held up that, that perhaps President-elect Trump would would um, order some sort of a congressional committee into the efficacy and safety of vaccines. So they have a relationship, it would appear. I, I, I could only say what I've read in the newspaper. I did not discuss any of that with Bobby. But that, yeah, that was my where I was going with that is is would a presidential pardon have any effect in this case? I've been I've been thinking about that for the last six weeks, and now especially with president writing pardons for just about anybody, um, it is a possibility. It is a possibility. Yeah. I just don't know if. Um, well, I don't think anybody really knows how the president's mind works at the moment. So, um, but yes, it is a possibility. Have you had conversations with, with Paul Schrade? I understand he's quite elderly now. He's in his 90s, but seems to be a very sound mind. Have you talked to Paul Schrade? He was yes, with, the, with the senator at the moment that he was shot, and he suffered a, a head injury himself. He was shot. He was the first person shot that evening. Yes. Uh, Paul has been working so hard to solve solve this, to get Sirhan out of jail and also to, for the American people to know the truth of what happened that evening. Paul is responsible for the reason, I, Paul is responsible for why Bobby Jr. Um, now believes that Sirhan's not guilty. When, when Paul showed up at the parole hearing in 2016, he spoke eloquently. And they wouldn't even let Sirhan shake his hand it was. It was just disgu- It's just disgusting the way they treat him. There's no rehabilitation at the prison. They just basically lock him up and abuse him. So what's the next step, Lori? Well, we're waiting to see if the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights is going to um, answer the petition that Bill Pepper put before them last June. We have another month to wait. And then after that, I'm hoping that we can gather enough public outrage that we can have a reinvestigation into this. I think people would be shocked to find out what actually went on that night. And if we don't move quickly, you know, as as each day that goes by, nobody's getting any younger and we're we're losing a lot of people that, that can help the case. Yes, you are, as they say, definitely in a race uh, with the un- with the undertaker. Yes, we are. And how is Sirhan? How how is Sirhan's mood? Is he giving up? Is is he? Understandably, he would be in in a deep depression. I could imagine. You know, two years ago, I was concerned about his mental outlook, but I'm not now. Uh, Sirhan is a very religious person, and. His belief in God, I think, is what what keeps him going. When I first met him, he said to me, if something happens to me in here, I didn't do it. 
And he couldn't because of his religious beliefs. Right. He, he stays right. upbeat. He stays upbeat. Just about out of time, and I'd love to have you back on um, maybe in a month when we approach the uh, the deadline for that for that next stage. But very quickly, how did Sirhan Sirhan feel about Bobby Kennedy? Uh, we've been told, you know, that he he was uh, he opposed Bobby because of Bobby's support for the state of Israel, and Sirhan Sirhan, of course, was Palestinian. What were his feelings towards Bobby Kennedy? Well, you know, um, I'm going to read you a quote. Um, Bobby Jr. asked Sirhan about his feelings towards my father. He, he asked him, what, you know, what were your feelings towards my father? And Sirhan replied, he was for the downtrodden, not just here, but around the world. His South African speech still resonates today. Sirhan had a lot of respect for the senator. He liked the senator. This whole thing about the, the um, Israeli-Palestine conflict. Yes, of course, Sirhan was concerned about it. it was, he came from there, and he would like to see peace in the Middle East. But that's not... They're trying to set him up as the first Arabic, Arab terrorist, and he's not. But Clearly. The, the uh, powers Laurie, have been um, very apologies. successful because that's what people think he is. Well, thank you for setting the record straight. Laurie Dusick, I appreciate your time. We'll have you back on if you'll, uh, if you would uh, agree to that. Thank you so much. Thank you. When we come back, Thomas Rosetto, the paradox of living enlightenment right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. And hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. I'm in Thornhill tonight doing the show from the home studio. Ian Robertson, my fine rockabilly friend, uh, back at Zoomerplex behind the audio board. Ryan, our live YouTube uh, producer, is uh, in his uh, home in East York. Uh, producing the uh, live stream remotely. Albert has the night off. And uh, I want to say hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, nearly 40 of them now across North America. Those of you who take the show with us on your mobile device with the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps, both free downloads. Uh, those of you who watch us on the YouTube stream. And, and um, incidentally, uh, we are approaching 8,000 subscribers. So if you haven't done so already and you are watching us on the YouTube stream, please hit the red the red sub button. And hello all to all of you, of course, in the uh, the live stream chat who join us without fail each and every week. We appreciate your support. However and wherever you're listening, I bid the, the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Now, just a reminder... If you haven't already subscribed to my new podcasts, I, I hope you'll consider doing so. Conspiracy Unlimited drops three times a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
You don't have to listen or wait, rather. You don't have to wait for the Sunday show. You can listen to Conspiracy Unlimited three days a week, and you can listen and subscribe. Just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And then my other podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, which is part of the Chris Jericho Network and Westwood One. And that drops every Wednesday at midnight. So if you like rock and roll and uh, dark mysteries, I think you'll enjoy it. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. And you can subscribe. Just Google it. That's the best way. It's everywhere. Just Google the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone and you'll find it. All right. We are going to talk about enlightenment for the next hour. And as I mentioned earlier, the world is certainly in short supply. Uh, my guest is an author who's written of, on uh, finding your true self through connection with one divine awareness. And uh, he's been with me before uh, many years ago on the radio. We were actually talking about spirit communication and the, the famous Harry Houdini seances. Thomas Rosetto uh, taught a class for the Center for Lifelong Learning, which is part of Santa Barbara City College. Um, and it was the highest ranked community college in the United States back in 2013. And this class had the same title as his book, Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. He's spoken publicly numerous times both in person and on the radio. And in September 2012, he spoke for the prestigious lecture series Mind and Supermind, which again was run by the Santa Barbara City College. Again, the book is Living the Paradox of Enlightenment, Spiritual Awakening in Simple, Clear English. Thomas Rosetto, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? It's been a long time. Uh, Hello, Richard. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the nice intro. I'm doing well. Thanks. So, the paradox uh, of enlightenment. Let's talk about the word paradox. What is the paradox of enlightenment? Um, There are numerous paradoxes as you go along this path, but probably the deepest paradox is, initially, you think of yourself as a person who's progressing spiritually, going down some kind of path in search of enlightenment, and you hope that one day this person will become enlightened. And this is true. The person does become enlightened, but when the wake-up process happens, and there's a little bit more to enlightenment than just waking up, but when the wake-up process happens, you wake up to the fact that you do not exist fundamentally as the person. The person does exist, and you exist as a person, but it is not your fundamental existence. So um, your fundamental existence is, as your introduction touched on, this pure awareness. You, in your book, you liken this to sort of the difference between the actor and the the character on the stage or on the right. on the screen that the actor right. is portraying. Just sort of drill down a little bit on that to, to complete the analogy. Yeah, I use that metaphor numerous times in the book. Each time I bring it out a little bit more. But the first thing to notice is that the actor is the source of the character. Certainly not the other way around. The character is not the source of the actor. So there's a sense of the transcendent source and the dependent construction. The character, of course, being a dependent construction. So the wisdom invites us to make a distinction between the actor and the character because of this. And yet, when the actor steps forward as the character, they truly are one. 
if you're standing in front of the character and you want to find the actor, you don't need to dig into a deeper and deeper layer. You can just see right there, when you look into the eyes of the character, you're looking right into the eyes of the actor. So with this metaphor of who you are as the real person and who you are as this seeming person, this, um, I'm sorry, I said the real person, I should say the real self, you are fundamentally this pure awareness. This is the actor. And it arises as this person. It actually arises as the totality of all of created reality. But it, for our purposes right now, in this uh, point in the discussion, we'll just uh, think of it as arising as this person, such as the person Thomas or the person Richard. So there are different persons, and these persons are unique, they're different. But there's only one awareness that is arising as all of this. We can go into that more as we go on. Sure. So this pure awareness, uh, which is looking through my eyes and looking through your eyes, mm. uh, is it is it all is the is it the, the same awareness for all of us? So there's only one right. act actor, but many characters. You're right. a character. I'm a character. Is that how it works? Right. 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 Well, it's not. Yes. Yes. And we would like to point out right now that it's the character that it is, seems like this is who you are fundamentally. It seems like I am Thomas, that I'm Thomas, and when Thomas is gone, that's the end of Thomas. And it seems like that. But the waking up process reveals that I am this pure awareness that is arising as this person, Thomas. And this person, Thomas, can be seen to be either... Some people look at it in a purely materialistic way, the body, and other people will introduce the idea of a soul. And the soul, of course, is working with or associating with the body. And together, the body and soul, I might call that the person. And so there is a person, and the person is unique and dynamic, and um, that is what I call a functional identity, because that's how we go through the world. And we don't want to lose our practicality um, we don't want to all of a sudden say, well, I'm none of this. I'm just going to sit here like a bump on the log or something. You know, you stay active in the world, and this is your functional identity, Richard and Thomas and so forth. So this pure awareness, then, is that God? Is that your, yes. is that your concept of the divine, this pure right. awareness? Um, yes, and this isn't something that you just um, step into right away, but... As you think about who you are, there's this process of dis disidentification. It's a classic uh, way of expressing this, where you might say, I'm not my body, I'm not my soul. And I like to add the word fundamentally. You are not fundamentally your body, you're not fundamentally your soul, and you start to recognize that you are this awareness. And you might think of it as your awareness or this awareness. And then you wake up to a second awakening where you go, oh, the awareness that's looking out of my eyes is the awareness that's looking out of your eyes and his eyes and her eyes and everyone's eyes. And then there comes one more awakening where you realize that this awareness is actually arising as the totality of created reality. At that point, you realize that this awareness has two capacities, the capacity to perceive and the capacity to create what it perceives. And this is why we refer to it as the divine awareness or source awareness. So this idea of creating what we perceive, creating our own reality, uh, 
I mean, that ta- that sounds suspiciously like the book The Secret, which was popularized, obviously, by Oprah Winfrey. It sounds sort of very right. new agey. I mean, you don't go along with that entirely. So explain where sort of you get off that train. Well, I don't think that that focus that that book offered um, is very helpful. It's very focused on outer conditions. People will think about, I want to be, do, and have, well, as the saying goes, be, do, and have whatever you want. And it's very focused on outer conditions. And I think that the true process of creation is much better served if you think about an emotional state of being, about being at peace, and being available for love to flow through you. This would be God's love flowing through you. Being at peace and also being joyful. Um, and so if you focus on these inner states, and the Buddhists talk about this, these are called the four virtues, um, they use this as more of a focus of mm, nurturing your existence rather than cultivating an outer world where if I get this, I will then be happy. I mean, this caters to the world's simplest philosophy. I will be happy when I get what I want. And this is not... Um, a fruitful way to go, in my opinion. So I think there's a difference between the outer focus on outer conditions and focusing on these inner states of being. And yet this inner state of being actually arises primarily, uh, fundamentally through your beliefs, the beliefs of the person, or you might say the beliefs of the soul, these core beliefs. And you may hold the belief that I don't fit into the world, and so a creation will come around and you may not, you don't have the ability to order things from a catalog, but there's still an arising of conditions in the world around you that reflect these core beliefs. That might not be that All right, clear, Thomas. But, uh, no, it's 100% you're clear. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with essayist, author, truth seeker, soul warrior, Thomas Rosetto. Living the Paradox of Enlightenment, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Follow the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means... There's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. Thomas Rosetto is with us. His website is infinitelymystical.com, and you can read all of his essays right there, infinitelymystical.com, and his new book is entitled, or just titled, I should say. I always get uh, uh, emails when I say entitled. It's titled, Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. We should uh, offer up a couple of definitions. What do you mean, first of all, by enlightenment? You know, that's an interesting subject, and a lot of people shy away from that, but I have a fairly simple definition. I learned this from my mentor, Timothy Conway, and the second part is what I'll give you first, because it's a little bit easier to understand. It's basically being a good person. To state it a little more formally, being completely free from all selfish or self-centered desires and tendencies. So you're not in this to, for me, 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 give me that, you know. It's, or selfishness and self-centeredness, I make a distinction between those. Selfishness is when you actually, like, cut in front of somebody to take their parking place away from them. There's someone who's, who you're interfering with. Whereas self-centeredness, you're going, hey, everybody else, you're on your own, that's fine, but I'm going to go over here and just have a good time, you know. But I don't really care about anybody else. There's no compassion or empathy or anything like that. So being a good person, being completely free from all selfish or self-centered desires and tendencies. And that takes lifetimes to actually unfold. That's a polishing up. And, of course, it's God who's doing this polishing of this person. Now, the first one has to do with waking up to what we were talking about, your true identity. So I state that as being completely awake to the intuitive understanding of your true identity as pure awareness. You see this pure awareness as the one self that arises as all selves. And that's the definition I use. So it's waking up to the, the idea that there is no me, you, which is what we call dualism, right? So this is a non-duality approach. So explain the concept of non-duality, because there's some confusion, I think, with that. Oh, yes, definitely. It's actually kind of, and I know this makes it sound flippant, but it actually is both, because I, fundamentally there is this one awareness, which is completely undivided and doesn't branch out and doesn't break into pieces, and yet it arises as you and me, and we're unique, we're different. So there's both. So we honor both. The non-dual, this word is used, and hardly anyone, in my opinion, uses it this way. But what it's pointing to, that God and creation are one reality, not two. This is the not two that that word is pointing to. Some people mistakenly think, in my opinion, that what they're pushing is the idea that there is no dualistic expressions, that somehow hot and cold are uh, not valid, or, you know, there's something that, that makes them the same, or something like that. But we honor all dualistic expressions for what they are in the world as they're expressed. And it's perfectly fine to have preferences and work for things according to your preferences. Like, we do work for the good. We don't work for evil. We don't say somebody, oh, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm making war. Oh, hey, let me help you with that. You know, it's, no, we try to help for peace. So, I'm not sure, you know, I, I come from a Christian background, a Christian faith, Orthodox Christian. Right. Is there anything in this, 
I guess I don't know my Bible very well. Otherwise, I wouldn't be I wouldn't have to ask the question. But is there anything in your philosophy that in your mind runs contrary to Christian uh, the Christian faith? I, you know, that's a difficult question, because Christianity is different things to different people. Um, so I would say that there are some people that are labeled Christian mystics, and they see that, um, like when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, they take that in a broader sense. It isn't just Jesus and God that are one, it's all of creation. And so it's um there is some compatibility there in my opinion but most definitely is this idea of working for the good and and also asking for god to work through you to work for the good right 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 the understanding again from a christian perspective is that 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 man as in mankind we're fallen we're we're fundamentally not good uh and that only through grace can you achieve this, I guess, what you would call uh, enlightenment, only through God's grace? You can't do it through good right. works. Right. Would you right. agree I with that? I would agree with that, and I would say that we would probably not say that, uh, say, to name a person, or we could talk about humanity in its entirety. We wouldn't necessarily say that it's fallen, but we would say that it is uh, completely powerless. I mean, it's just, it's basically... Um, it doesn't have any substance of its own. Its substance, like the actor and the character, when you talk about just the character, the character is nothing without the actor. The actor is what brings the substance to the character. Every quality right. or aspect that's put on the stage is put there by the actor. So this is a bold thing to say, because this means that God is arising as everyone, and God is doing everything. And so that's makes people uncomfortable when they get to this idea that maybe God is doing even what we call evil. And that is a question I really can't answer, and I think it's important for me to point out that I can't answer all these questions. Sure. Who, who can? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't want to sound flippant or trying to escape. I try to put some good guidance on the table, and I think that it's important to look for good things and what happens to you in your life, and also to try and work for the good. If you are um, pursuing some type of understanding and it, it uh, is not inspiring you to be a good person, or it's trying to encourage you to say, oh, none of this matters, you know, I would invite you to look at that a little more deeply, because you should be practical, and you should be working for something that is wholesome and beneficial for people. Right, right. Now, the um, the idea of creating your own reality, or you sort of refine that, is working on your inner your inner self, and that you can create that 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 happens through what affirmations, meditation. How do you 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 use the example of someone who doesn't feel that they are worthy of love or that they fit right. in, they belong. So, how do right. you create that reality in practical terms? I think one of the first things to do is take a look at the thoughts that are going through your mind, because they will reflect your deeper core beliefs. And you can also look at the circumstances that are around you. I ran into these ideas a long time ago. I think it was about 1980. And at that time, I was reading the Seth books. And Seth was saying, you create your own reality. 
And I ran into some people who were also saying you can be, do, and have whatever you want. And I incorrectly said, ah, these are the same things. And then later those phrases of be, do, and have whatever you want found its way into the secret many years later. But when I worked with it way back in 1980, I was not successful as defined by outer conditions. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, ah, gee, I don't know. Maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe it doesn't work. Um, I'm missing something, whatever. And I just said, well, I'll just go do my thing as best I can. But for whatever reason, I was inspired in 2012 to reread some of the Seth books. And I reread uh, The Nature of Personal Reality. And in there, I, I started to see, you know, he's not saying that you can be, do, and have whatever you want. He's saying that you can pick these open-ended beliefs and hold them inside and look for what arises. It's not like ordering things from a menu, but what arises will reflect these core beliefs. And so I looked around at the very, now I'll use this word, very small life that I had, and I said, well, I don't believe that I fit in, and I haven't believed this for decades. So maybe I ought to open that up and say, I do fit in. I don't know what this will bring, but I do fit in. And I did use affirmations. So I used 10 minutes a day, and I still do these, and I change them around a little bit. 10 minutes a day, 5 minutes a day. In fact, Seth says if you use these affirmations for more than 10 minutes, you're simply telling yourself that you have very big problems that are going to be very difficult to fix. So he says, you should give that idea up and just work with five or ten minutes a day. And um, you should check back and see how the outer conditions are reflecting, but you don't use those as the guide. You use your experience. And if you're doing this so that you can set up outer conditions so that you go, oh, now they're the way I want, now I will be happy. You're putting it in the wrong order. You need to learn how to examine your beliefs so that you can be happy now, at least to some extent. So this is why I recommended the book Pollyanna, which was written more than 100 years ago. And she guides people into looking at the things in your life, finding something, and she called it the glad game, and it became very popular. And, and uh, so I have an essay about that. Um, anyway, so I, that's how what does... I worked with mostly. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So... If you're, I mean, we all know that changing a behavior is the most difficult thing there is to do. And you just ask yeah. someone who, who smoked for 20 years and has, is trying to quit how difficult it is to change behavior. So some might be saying, well, simply by doing these daily affirmations, how is that going to, how is that going to change my behavior? Let's say, for example, uh, a, um, a person is angry all the time. Yeah, and that it defines who they are. They just they're constantly lashing yeah, out. Exactly. Uh, they're an angry person. Yeah. How are you going to change that reality by 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 simple daily affirmations? Well, I'm glad you brought up because the three components of this creative process are the core beliefs, the emotions, and the actions. They all come from the belief. If the belief is such that the world is against me at every turn. You know, this will lead to emotional frustration, and that'll fester into this anger, and therefore you'll have this lashing out. So if this person is willing to look, oh, maybe I can let go of this anger, and maybe they can step in and have some little practices, maybe they will be drawn to a particular 
procedure that I'm not even aware of, you know. I mean, there may be people that uh, specialize in anger that have procedures that do work as long as people bring an attitude of, I'm going to give this an honest, genuine try. Um, Perhaps that will guide them into um, an environment where they feel like they're respected for who they are right then and there, and yet these people are also willing to work with them and help them and care about them in a way that will help them bring them to a new place where they can find a little more joy inside them that they can share with others. You say the key then is to you have to identify what your core beliefs are if you're going to be able Mm -hmm. to change your inner reality. But that requires, in some cases, a great deal of self-awareness, which many people perhaps do not have. How, you know, how do you identify your core belief? For example, how do you identify why you're angry? Maybe you don't really understand why you're angry. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, It might be a little easier for me to deal with this on a case-by-case basis, but I'm not a counselor of any kind, so I want to point that out, too. Uh, In a general sense, there needs to be some kind of idea in this person's mind that, yes, this situation can be improved. Just that is enough to say, okay, for me to uh, improve this situation, I'm going to have to start looking at causes. Why am I angry? What is it? And what Seth put on the table was that your core beliefs are in the conscious mind, but they become mm, habitual. He, re, he likens it to furniture in a room, and the furniture is there, and if you pay attention to it, it'll, you'll see it. But normally you're not paying attention to that, those beliefs. You're paying attention to the outer conditions that are arising from it. So he wants to point out that you don't need to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and hypnosis or any of that, although that may be helpful for people that have smoking or anger issues or, like you say. For me, what I did was I said, hey, look, I mean, I've got enough time that's passed. I don't have any mm, serious problems, and I'm a reasonably happy person, but I don't think I'm engaging in my life as fully as I could. So I think I'm going to look at both the outer conditions, the thoughts that are going through my head, like, oh, I can't do that because, and then I look at why, why do I say I can't do that because, because I don't fit in. It's like, well, I don't have to believe I don't fit in. I'll just start opening up to the idea that I fit in. Um, and so things changed, and um, things changed quickly in some ways for my life, and things took longer in other ways. It's interesting, though, you know, the idea of trying to fit in, because one could argue that that traveling yeah. the spiritual path is yeah. basically making a conscious decision not to fit in. Because when right. we look at the world around us, yeah, clearly, you know, most of the world is not on the spiritual path. So going on the spiritual path is arduous. It's difficult. It doesn't make life easier, necessarily. Exactly. In, many, in many ways, it makes life more difficult. Yeah, can we pick up that when we get back? Absolutely. You're like a seasoned radio vet. You heard the music coming up, and you knew we had to go to a break. Well done, Thomas. We'll come back. Thomas Rosetto, Living the Paradox of Enlightenment, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome back. Thomas Rosetta is here, and uh, the book is Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. Before the break, Thomas, we were talking about how living the spiritual life often means coming to terms with the fact that you're not going to fit in. Uh, and yet that was something that obviously you wanted to try and for yourself to figure out how, yeah. you know, can I fit in? Maybe the answer is you, you don't. Maybe you, you don't need to look to try and fit in. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I would say that you certainly don't want to mimic or go along with evildoers and things like that. You need to express yourself in your own way. But, well, I shouldn't say you. I should say me. I mean, this was uh, about me. Uh, seeing that I can step forward into the world and start speaking up without concern of who's going to like me and who's not going to like me. And that's how I'm going to fit in. It may be a, a small compared to the number of people that bought the book, The Secret, <laughs> but at least I will be um, stepping forward in a way that I didn't before when I was staying in a very, very small place in my life. So, Yes, you want to check your own integrity, your own, mm, you know, there's, there's that resonance uh, within you when you know that you are doing the right thing, the appropriate thing, what you're meant to do in life. And if you're not on that path, then you know that there's a little lacking. I don't know if I explained that very well, but how do you feel about some of the work that you do? I mean, don't you feel that it has a, a purpose that's greater than who you are, but you're still doing your part? Uh, that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, as a, as a Christian, we have we are in the world, but we're not of the world. That's right. kind of the way we, we try to look at it. So yeah, I think I, I you and I are talking too. the same language. Yeah, I yeah. use that phrase, too, because... Um, we are in the world right now, even if someone were to say in some definitive way, you know, that the world is a dream or something like that. It's like, well, a dream is real as a dream. We shouldn't downplay a dream just because someone says it's a dream. It's valid right. because it's here. It's experience. There's pain and suffering, and there's also pleasure, and there's a helping hand, and there are people that are um, not so helping. And so in that framework, even if it is a dream, usually people say it's a dream because it's fleeting. It doesn't, the world doesn't seem to have any lasting permanence to it. So that's one reason why they say it's a dream. But we still honor it. We don't invalidate it. And so we want to, I want to step forward in a way that I can participate in a way that's a little larger than what I've done in the past. So I've been using that um, affirmation about uh, uh, fitting into the world in a beautiful way or something like that or a loving way. Um, right. So that's what I've been using. But well, or to go back to your, your analogy, standards. sure. Go ahead, Richard. To go back to your analogy of the of the uh, the actor versus the character, uh, you know, if you if if you look at the uh, as as at this life as a play, 
rather than a dream, you know, we were given a role to yeah. play and we were given a script and we have to finish the play and we have to, you know, give our best performance. Um, you mentioned because you were sort of inspired by the Seth books, we should spend just a couple of minutes. We, this is a short segment. We'll break soon here. But okay. uh, talk to talk to me about this Seth character who was being channeled by this psychic, I guess, back in the 1960s, uh, Jane Roberts, 1964, yeah. I think. Uh, how did how did Jane Roberts connect with Seth and who who is he or was he? Um. That's a good question, and I wanted to just touch on that one thing you said about a script. The script is not fixed. The script is dynamically unfolding in this play. So it's not like there's fate that's got its hand over everything. You see what I'm True. saying? True, yeah. Yes, we have, yes we, we, we have a role to play, but we can improvise. Yeah, exactly, right. So um, Jane Roberts and her husband never had any experience with this kind of spiritual work or whatever, and for some reason they decided to fool around with a Ouija board, and it started to send some messages to them, and shortly thereafter that, she was able to speak using her voice, and they didn't have to use the Ouija board, and Seth was very different in his personality and mannerisms and vocal tone and all of this, and he ended up dictating books from cover to cover. And I'm not sure how many books. I would have guessed around six or seven. People have made new ones since Jane Roberts passed away in 84, where they go through some of the old material and old recording. They had a lot of audio recordings and made more books. But as far as the books that Seth actually dictated, he spent some time. And uh, one of them is Seth Speaks. And then the next one, I think, was The Nature of Personal Reality. And a little later, he had one call, it had the phrase, um, mass events, because it was more about groups. And I forget the full title, but it had something about the nature of personal reality and mass events. And so he's talking about things, bigger questions like war and stuff like that. So it's quite a lot of material. And I did have trouble reading these books. I had to read them very slowly. Other people tell me, oh, they read them very fast. I don't know how helpful that was for them, but for me, I had to read them slowly. And why do you, what led you to believe that Jane Roberts and her husband were actually in communication with this entity known as Seth, and they weren't just making the whole thing up? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, um, when I picked up the first book, I was in a bookstore. I just kind of flipped the book into the middle I started reading. It seemed like it was a compassionate person, um, very wise, um, very insightful, good sense of humor, and I thought I'd give it a try. So I started reading them. And uh, later, like I said, it was, wasn't long before I, uh, maybe a year or two or so, where I said, you know, I just am not, judging from my outer conditions, I don't see a whole lot happening here, so I just kind of put them aside for a long time. And when I came back to them all those years later, I said, okay, now I can look at my core beliefs and I can see the circumstances in my life and how they reflect those core beliefs. And so I'm going to give it another try. And instead of working on affirmations that are oriented towards outer conditions, I'm going to work on open-ended affirmations, you know, things right. that are more right. about the way I feel rather than, uh, you know, trying to order up something from a catalog. Thomas will take a time out, come back, and continue to discuss enlightenment right here on The Conspiracy Show. 
When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Thomas Rosetto stays with us, the author of Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. And again, the website is infinitelymystical.com, where you can read a collection of his essays, infinitelymystical.com. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Tookie Williams, Stanley Tookie Williams, who was a a pretty hardened member of the, was it the Bloods or the Crips? He was a gang member, the Crips. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about Tookie Williams and why his—he was sentenced to death. Uh, he was—he was put to death by lethal injection. Yeah. Why that—that that affected you so much? You know, um, this happened in December of 2005, and I had been attending weekly meetings with my spiritual mentor for about oh gosh, I don't know, four or five months at that point, maybe six. And um, he had been talking about how this awareness was so fundamental and arises as everything. And so, as an aside, seemingly a separate topic, I happened to listen to the radio and someone was talking about this, this man who started, he was a founding member of the Crips, as a very young boy, I think it was like 13 or 14, and it started out as a neighborhood protection kind of thing. But as they're running around the neighborhood late at night, they started rubbing elbows with drugs and other people and getting involved in all that and then turning into, you know, it was a pretty heavy gig. I mean, they were talking murder, all kinds of stuff. And many years later, he's arrested for murder. He thinks he's framed for this particular murder and proclaims his innocence for this one. Um, but in the meantime, when he was in prison... He started to write books, children's books, short children's books, 25 pages. And uh, they were basically um, telling children and young adults, teenagers, about the false promise of gang life. And he was getting flooded with letters from people, you know, telling him that he was the only reason they were staying out of gangs. And he was doing all this good work while in prison, writing these books. And I heard him speak because they were talking about um, his upcoming execution, and there was some people trying to stop this. And it was, it seemed like, well, one, the man is harmless now. Why, what's the benefit for killing him? He's not doing anything harming society in any way, but I guess it's, you know, to make an example and deterrent and that kind of thing, you know. And I did not expect to be impacted so strongly emotionally. But I heard him speak for just a couple of minutes on the radio a couple of times. Um, I don't remember them being long interviews. Um, But he seemed like he was getting the work done. He was a voice for peace. And um, he was keeping people out of gangs. I thought that was really significant. and, And I just couldn't imagine that he would be put to death. And so I had gone to sleep. And I had woken up at around 1 o'clock in the morning, and they usually do these, these executions around midnight. 
And so I knew that if I pushed the button on my clock radio, the lead story would be whether or not they went through with this. And I went ahead and I pushed that button. And, um, you know, I heard an uh, unemotional voice of the man just announcing that he was gone, no longer there for his family or his friends. And I still get emotional about it now because I had been writing for like five or six years at that point, and no one was really paying much attention to my writing. And here was Tookie. You know, he was getting the job done beautifully. And yet here he is put down. And I'm thinking, all these people that work for peace, like John Kennedy and, you know, Tookie, and it's just like, seemed like the, you know, the, fo- the forces for darkness seemed to just be getting stronger and stronger. And I, I just broke down and cried and cried so hard I couldn't believe that someone could cry that hard and while I was crying I kind of stepped back from that and witnessed to myself crying and I said I wonder what this sadness really is and I I pulled in that sadness I pulled it closer and I pulled it right into me I pulled it into my awareness and it just dissolved and it dissolved quickly and um, with that I went oh this emotion is arising out of my awareness because that's where it, it, that's how it works. It arises out of this awareness and it dissolves back into it. That's where all my experiences come. They all, it's just an intuitive awakening. And so that was um, quite profound for me and um, it really floored me. And I have an essay about that up on my website so um, people can read that too. Infinitely mystical uh, dot com. I wanted to ask you about uh, the gentleman who wrote the foreword to your book. You refer to him as your spiritual mentor, Timothy Conway. And this is not the Tim Conway from the Carol Burnett show, folks. Uh, <laughs> Although there is a tie-in, which is really funny. Between okay, both well, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot to learn from a, a, a comedian like Tim, Tim Conway. But, but who, is, who is the Timothy Conway in your life? You know, um, he's about my age, and... Um, he grew up in the L.A. area. His father was a, um, an agent for actors, and one of his actors was Timothy Conway. Ah, there you <laughs> go. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, Timothy, when he was only 16, had some kind of experience. It's not a full and complete awakening, um, but he had a quite profound experience that he was like, everything is God. This is all God. And he's very scholarly. And he embarked on, from that point forward, on an adventure into studying Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, Sufism, all these non-dual traditions, Christian mystics, um, indigenous people, uh, Native Americans, as they sometimes are called, and so forth. And he has uh, accumulated quite a bit of knowledge, but it's just... It's not just knowledge. He is such an open heart, and he's very, very aware. And He has a scholarly mind that's much beyond mine. I'll put it that way. He can deal with these foreign languages. Of, you know, the Buddhists often use Sanskrit and Pali and other languages, and I am just not very good at that, which is why my book has the subtitle, you know, Spiritual Awakening in Plain English. You know, but anyway... He even went to India and met some of these teachers, and he was just having these weekly meetings in Santa Barbara for about, oh gosh, it was more than 20 years. And I showed up about in the middle of all of that. I had heard of him, but anyway, one time 
I ran into someone who was going to one of the meetings, and she said, oh, you know, it's right now, it's right up the street, it's completely free. <laughs> and I said, you know what, I can do that. So I went up and, and you know, the first time you hear these, these, um, these teachings, it's like, oh, man, I don't even know if I understand what they're saying. But I said, you know, he's not putting himself in the middle of the spotlight. He's not making a big deal of it all. He's just putting it, I'm going to come back next week. And I just came back next week, and then I said, you know, I'm going to come back again. And I just kept coming back. And so, um, yeah, he and I got pretty close, uh, although we both, most of the time all we spent together was in these meetings, two hours, Tuesday nights in Santa Barbara. And then in, uh, I think it was around 2016, he moved to Phoenix with his wife. And so I haven't seen him very much. We talk a little bit on the phone, Skype a little bit. But um, he's got a huge website, um, enlightened-spirituality.org, and that's Timothy Conway. And and he, he talks about, and you mentioned his heart-mind explosion at the age of 16 without the aid of drugs, as he points out. Yeah. Uh, but how does that happen for some people that oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, they just they, they, they catch a, a glimpse of it, of this oneness, and they're able to hold on to it, where most people may, sometimes with the aid of drugs, uh, catch a fleeting glimpse of it, but then they lose it forever. Yeah. How does it stick? And they end up chasing it as if they're incomplete and they need to get what they used to have. And Timothy often says, I'd like to remind you, you already are this pure awareness, whole and complete. The person is going to be going through all kinds of changes, but who you truly are fundamentally, the actor rather than the character, who you are fundamentally is already whole and complete. So no need to chase. In fact, um, the phrase I like to use is a um, sincere curiosity. It's not driven, it's not urgent, it doesn't have, oh, i got to figure it out, oh, i got to become enlightened. I have people get in touch with me. How do I do this really fast? <laughs> and I'm like, first, drop the idea that you're going to do it really fast. <laughs> it's going to go at whatever speed it is. And, you know, honestly, I believe in past lives, so I think that people have had past lives that prepare them for this unfolding, so they get a little bit of a head start on it. Is a belief in past lives an essential component of enlightenment do you believe i don't because i don't i don't believe in rein, i don't believe in reincarnation that's my faith um yeah i, I don't believe so. that it's required i mean um one of the one of the things as far as the the teaching of you create your own reality points to just try to be positive and just try and be positive so right now right here with what you have how will that improve from where you might have been thinking, everything always goes bad for me, everything always goes wrong, you know, switch it around. So there's that. And then as far as the other part about being this pure awareness fundamentally, you can ponder that without um, entertaining the idea of reincarnation. There are people that have done research um, in reincarnation, and I think it's the University of Virginia, is that right? Um, Ian Stevens or Ian? Yes, yes, the reincarnated uh, ch children uh, who yeah. had um, incredible memories of, of past lives. I must admit that that, that stuff is compelling, uh, particularly the case of that young boy out in Seattle. 
who believed he was a fighter pilot in the Second World War and knew all of these intricate details, even the pilot's name. And, and, and uh, yeah, it was, it's quite remarkable. I don't know what to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I read those books and it's like, hmm, that's really interesting. And what's really great in a lot of ways is you don't have to believe one way or the other for it. And so um, same with um, when they talk about out-of-body experiences. You know, it's like maybe, um, but when you do it yourself, then it's a whole different deal. You know, then you can speak from experience. And have you had one? No, not me. Um, I, I'm entertaining the idea of giving that a bit more of a go. So, but right now I haven't done that. And so, yes, um, Ian Stevenson retired in 2002, and Jim Tucker took the work over at the That's University it. of Virginia. And over at the U- University of Arizona, you have Dr. Gary Swartz with the afterlife experiments and work with mediums and things like that. And then other people, like I said, are... Uh, doing workshops with out-of-body experiences. These are all things that help you move to the uh, understanding that you are not a body, and you're moving more to the idea that you are a soul. And all I'm pointing out is there's even one more step, that you are this pure awareness that gives rise to the soul and rise to the body, and then together it all goes. InfinitelyMystical.com and the books Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. How can we get a copy of the book? Um, Amazon.com. You can get an ebook or you can get a paperback. They're pretty inexpensive. And um, you can check out my website. And I intentionally wrote all those essays so that they're standalone. You can read them in any order. I try to get to the core of the book in these essays. I do not try to hide the core of the book so that you are compelled to buy the book. That's really silly. Um, if you like the essays, you'll probably like the book. Thomas, a great pleasure speaking with you again. Thank you so much for this. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show, Richard. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again. Thomas Rosetto, infinitelymystical.com. My thanks to Ian and Ryan and Albert back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.